Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Lord, a passage we'll look at today in Job 42 says that we have uh, looked at things too lofty to understand. We have spoken on things too wonderful of which we do not know. In the gospel, we see this tension. We see a Jesus who has come, who has lived, who has spoken, whose witness has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and handed down through the apostles, that we can know it, we can understand it, and yet we cannot understand in our flesh the fullness of who you are, the tensions of life in this broken world, and the hope that is held out for us. And yet even though we are but dust, you care for us. So we ask, Lord, that you help us today to understand things too wonderful, to know a Christ who is unbound himself, but who lived bound by the flesh so that all might see and know your salvation through him. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, in Charles Dickens' masterpiece, the one that you were all supposed to read in high school, but very few of you did, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, he begins the first motion of his book, and it's called Recalled to Life. He begins with one of the most famous openings of any book ever. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, and we were all going direct the other way. As we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen the ministry of Jesus displayed with even more dramatic tension than our world's greatest novelists could ever communicate. And we know this tension because anyone who has ever lived a day in this world knows the pendulum of experiences of best of times, of worst of times, of belief and unbelief, of light and of darkness. And today we encounter not a tale of two cities, but a tale of two daughters. Two encounters which at one moment seems to be the best, and other moment seems to be the worst. We see a portrait of astounding faith, and we see a portrait of feeble incredulity. But the tension that all of us know of these peaks and valleys of experiences are swallowed up in the person and power and character of Jesus Christ. And the hope of this message we see today is the hope for our life, to prepare us for trials. And what Luke has been showing us is Jesus's authority over powers too mighty for us. Walking with Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, confessing faith in Jesus doesn't remove the three primary challenges the Bible paints. That is the world, that which is outside, the flesh, that which is inside, and the devil. But it does promise for everyone who suffers in those things, a unique sort of triumph over all those as we walk with Jesus who has unique authority over each of those spheres. And we all wrestle with the problem of evil. Why it's here? Why do we suffer? Why, if God is good, are things so difficult? Why are we still here? And in our head, 
We want these textbook answers. We want answers to sorrow and suffering and problems of evil. And there's much good academic theology, much good Christian philosophy, which speaks soul-stirring truths into that. And yet, God, in his wonderful communication to us, has not given us a proposition to answer that question. Instead, he's shown us a person. And that person, his ministry, his life, and his care for those who are like him answers that tension in ways that we cannot imagine but are also called to believe. Seeing who Jesus is, what he's done, what he is accomplishing, and what he will do gives us renewed perspective and real hope in the paradoxes of life. And in Luke chapter 8, which is where we are today, this is going to be our main point as we look at this profound story. We're going to see when we walk with the one who calls the dead to life, we walk through suffering with distinct perspectives. When we walk with the one who calls the dead to life, we walk through suffering with distinct perspectives. In other words, walking with Jesus is walking in this same world with the same challenges and the same sorrows and the same enemies and seemingly the same setbacks, but because of what we believe and confess in Jesus. Because of what he's done for us on the cross, our perspective on the world is different because we view it through the lens of eternity, of what will happen, and the gospel that is what has already happened. And we're going to see two perspectives in our text today with each of these women who Jesus is going to heal. But much like last week, Luke, as the master historian, is going to go into detail to build out the real context of what's going on. And so I want us to understand this more. And so we're going to begin in Luke 8, verses 40 through the first part of 42. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And so the beauty of how we read the Gospels is that oftentimes the point is in the story. God is so sovereign that his history is actually the teaching points. And so paying attention to this story is so key. And so if you remember last week, Jesus had crossed the sea and he had gone into Gentile territory and he had cast demons out of a man and that area was uncomfortable with Jesus's power. And so they begged him to go away, even though the man he healed begged to stay with him. And so now Jesus crosses back over the sea into Jewish territory and there is a crowd waiting for him. And it seems this crowd is there, at least the majority of it, with one specific need. And that is the need of a man who we meet named Jairus. And Jairus' name is used most likely because he was well known to the Jews in the area. He was a ruler of a synagogue. You guys have all met a ruler of a synagogue, right? This was really similar to what uh, a pastor would be today. He belonged to a community. He kind of kept the day-to-day functions at the synagogue going. He cared in and for the spiritual and relational needs of his flock. And Jairus was therefore not only known by the people, but probably even loved by some of them. And this is distinct because at this point in Jesus' ministry, most of the interaction Jesus has had with official uh, uh, religious folks of Pharisees and scribes and synagogue rulers 
has not been good interactions. They've been mostly hostile and challenging of Jesus. But what we see is there's no tension in Jairus' heart. Did you notice all the action words we see in these first couple verses? Instead of vetting and judging Jesus like many authorities had, Jairus seeks him out. He falls at his feet. He implores him, that is to ask heartily, to come into his house. Why? Verse 42 tells us he had a daughter, an only daughter, a 12-year-old daughter, and she was dying. When we read these verses, we should encounter it with nothing more than absolute, desperate fatherly affection. I have four children. Three of them are daughters. And I can't imagine the weight this would have on you. My oldest daughter is seven. Her name's Adley. She's right there. Most of you have met Adley. She's wonderfully gregarious. And I imagine that if this were Adley, it wouldn't just be me that's affected. That you, in part, would share this burden and share this concern. And we're blessed to know this. We have a church that loves us and loves the other elders. We've gone through a miscarriage and a potential miscarriage. And in that, the whole church gathered around us and they were invested to see this solved, to care for us. It wasn't simply Sarah and I who suffered and were anxious and burdened, but a whole community which endured all of this. But imagine, despite what you could maybe feel or have felt, what it would be like for me, my zeal, my urgency, my fears, and now import all of those emotions into these verses. And this is where God's word meets us today. A young girl is dying. A life is at stake. Speed is of the essence. And to the father's joy, Jesus is willing to go. But immediately, the father encounters two problems. We see the first in the second half of verse 42 where it says this, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. The crowds, the same crowds that were waiting, the same crowds who probably some wanted to see Jesus and some were hoping to maybe add some weight to Jairus' appeal saying, please come, they now pose a problem. The Greek word used here is the same word that in Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew and Mark is translated as choked out the seed. In uh, Mark, he uses this wonderfully theological word. He says, the crowds squashed him. They were pressing on him. They were squishing up against him. We all know the pain of trying to make a quick Costco run up Reserve Street. But here, it's not a $5 rotisserie chicken that's on a line. It is the very life of a girl. And traffic has slowed to a halt. And then it gets worse. Read with me Luke 8, 43 through 49. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, 
Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So here we have, at face value, what is the best of times and the worst of times. We've got something that seems so good and something which is, on the other hand, so tragic. And this is our first point today, is that insignificant suffering is significant to Jesus. Insignificant suffering is significant to Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, this woman and her suffering is entirely insignificant in light of what is going on. And this is built out with how Luke is telling us this story. We see the unique privilege of walking with Jesus as Luke is showing us this context, which causes the staggering beauty of Jesus's character to come to the foreground. This woman, unlike Jairus' daughter, is not of any particular significance to the crowd. Jairus is known by name. This is simply a woman, another one of the crowd. We aren't sure how old she is, But what Luke tells us is she has been suffering with this condition the same amount of years Jairus' daughter has been alive. A 12-year-old girl is dying, and here is someone who for 12 years has been suffering. And what she's been suffering with was what Luke, who himself was a physician, called a discharge of blood. Medically speaking, this is most likely categorized today as what is called, I wrote it down so I didn't sound foolish, Menorrhagia. And what this was is, clinically speaking, it was just really extreme menstrual symptoms that could be caused by perhaps a bleeding disorder or some sort of obstruction in the uterus. And in talking to a physician this week, she said the result of that would be to, quote, bleed like crazy. This physician also told me that this disease is remarkably treatable today, either with medicine or small routine surgery. And actually, the seeming inconvenience of this disease is stressed all the more by Luke when he says she's been suffering with it for 12 years. She's suffering with it. She's not dying from it. If you could do anything for 12 years, you'd probably do it for another 45 minutes. She's all right. In contrast to this young daughter's situation, this is quite insignificant. But it's not to this woman. And that's how our experiences work, isn't it? It's really easy for us to hold up our suffering and compare to other people's suffering. And that might at some points balance us. We do that with our kids all the time, right? You're not starving. You ate five minutes ago. I promise it'll be okay. But often what happens is we have these experiences which are really trying, really distressing, and we hold up others who are perceivingly, or perceivingly worse, and it, we just heap shame on ourselves. Why is this such a big deal to me? 
Why am I so burdened? I know other people have it worse than this. But there's a degree to whatever is happening to us is uniquely personal and significant to us. Now, this might come as a shock to you, but I've never been a woman. But I've been married to one. And I know how this kind of experience, even in the best case scenarios, is still burdensome on a woman. To go through the cycles that God has given them as females. But this is not a once a month thing. This is something that has been ongoing for 12 years. It has reached the point where Luke is telling us the extremes she's gone to to find relief. In the Greek it says she has lavished all of her property. She has given everything she owns to this end. It's not that this was a poor woman with no access to anything. This was a woman who had assets and she poured all of it out to any physician who would potentially help her. But Mark tells us that despite these medical interventions, the bleeding only grew worse. And her dire state is spelled out clearly for us in verse 33 where it says, she could not be healed by anyone. 12 years, all of her property, eager yearning, and nothing. But more than the physical distress, this also brought unique relational and spiritual isolation. As part of God's law, there was not only commands that made Israel distinct from other nations for simply reasons of holiness and worship, there were also things in a pre-medical, pre-antibiotic world that were just designed by God, given to his people as a common grace to keep them from diseases. And part of that was when there was a discharge of this sort, that that individual would be unclean ceremonially, until it stopped and they could cleanse themselves. And what this meant was that she couldn't be touched by somebody and she couldn't go to the temple. And for any ordinary Israelite woman, this wasn't that big of a deal. There were similar things that would cause a man to be unclean. And this was one thing that they just got in a rhythm of where they would experience this. They would do the cleansing process. They would go to the temple. They would rejoin their community and they would worship God. But for this woman, she was not only allowed to visit the temple for 12 years because of her bleeding, but she was not even allowed to be touched by anyone on account of her bleeding. If she touched someone, that person would then themselves have to go through a sort of ceremonial cleansing. They would be able to go back, but they would have to cleanse themselves first, and there'd have to be a waiting period in this. You can read more about this in Leviticus chapter 15, but it was on account of her physical suffering, her relational isolation, and her spiritual isolation that the scandal of this text is absolutely staggering. Because this woman who for 12 years was in pain. This woman who for 12 years was not given access to the presence of God. This woman who for 12 years has not been touched reaches out and touches the very presence of God. And immediately she was made well. Can you feel what she might have felt? The closest I've come is, as I mentioned, we had with Ellie, who's four now. We found out 
uh, a couple months into pregnancy that Sarah had um, a hematoma in her uterus, which could cause her to miscarry at any point of time. And so for seven months, we woke up every morning and went to every scan thinking, is my daughter alive? Will we ever get to see her? And many of you bore that with us. And then there was one day where we went and Sarah gave birth to a healthy baby girl and the danger had passed. And I can't describe the emotions I had. I was overwhelmed with emotions when kids are born, which is always amazing to me because there's so many things in my anxious mind that are just terrifying at that point. But God makes me so grateful to have these healthy babies. And in that moment, there was this physical relief. There's this undoneness. There's this sobbing with my wife that I could not put into words. That was seven months. This was 12 years. And in a second, all of it changed. And then the worst thing that could have happened, happened. Jesus noticed her. The one who had just touched and made unclean the religious teacher was now called out in front of the whole crowd. Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter, perhaps knowing Peter, this is maybe to just diffuse what's otherwise an awkward situation. He's like, ha ha ha, Jesus, you're in a crowd. Remember the squashing? Everyone's touching you. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Someone touched me. For I perceive power has gone out of me. And here we see something unique about Jesus. There is a sense where Jesus was in full control of his healing power. And we know that because it wasn't, there wasn't this like radius of healing that was just going from Jesus from the crowd that was touching him. Perhaps dozens of people were touching him, but this is the only one who was healed. And so Jesus, in a sense, was aware and volitional and willing when his power left him to heal this individual. And yet, in his humanity, he did not know who touched him. And so Jesus asked the question, who touched me? And here we see the sweetness of being saved by Jesus. He doesn't simply seek to stamp passports in some transactional salvation, but he seeks to save people, his people, people he knows. Have you ever read that anxiety-producing passage where Jesus in Matthew 7 describes these crowds of people who come to him on the last day and Jesus sends them away. And what does he say? He says, away from me, I never knew you. But here is the heart of Jesus towards all who seek him in faith. He seeks to know you. He wants to know you. Anyone whom he saves, he will also know personally. But this woman is not reading a theology book. <laughs> she is living her life and is absolutely fearful. Fearful because what would any other rabbi do? What would any other teacher do who now had to go through this process of ceremonial cleansing, being inconvenienced by the touch of an impure person? More than that, Jesus was on an important errand to heal someone with something life-threatening, and she stopped all of that. The whole crowd lurched to what was already a seeming halt to dead stop. 
And everyone saw why they stopped. And Luke says she has a terrible realization in verse 47. Do you see that? When she realized she was not hidden. No one hides from Jesus. You might think you can approach the holiness of God and the safety of a crowd and blend in, hopefully getting by with the merits of somebody else being imported to you, or knowing you're perhaps better than this individual over here. There's this account, there's safety in a crowd. You might think you could gussy up the outside and convince Jesus that you're a safe bet, that you're just like everyone else, that you've got life put together. But Jesus, the Holy One of God, sees you and none are hidden from his sight. He sees all of you, your weaknesses, your sins, your sufferings, your sorrows, and your strengths. And that leads, John tells us, some to run from the light but it leads this woman further into it. Instead of withdraw, she showed humble honesty and feeble faith. For look at what happens in verse 47. And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She came trembling and falling down. And what did she do? In the presence of all the people, she declared why she had touched him. She probably declared about her bleeding, something that was probably intimate and awkward to share. The duration of it. Her desire to be healed from it. How none had been able to help her. And how she thought, if I could just touch the cloak of this miracle-working man of God, perhaps, maybe I would be healed. And sure enough, I touched it, and I was. But think of the potential fear this would have caused in her as well. Hearing her most hidden wounds. Hearing that there's probably a bunch of other people now who realize that they're also unclean and need to cleanse themselves because of this woman. This whole crowd knew that there was a dying 12-year-old of a well-loved and prominent figure. And this woman who was not dying, who was not in a life or death situation, who could have easily waited and who was ceremonial unclean, stopped this whole care team for this. But look at what Jesus said in Luke 8, 48. And he said to her, daughter Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. When a daughter's life is on the line, Jesus calls this woman a daughter. He affirms her faith and sends her away at peace. He speaks into her fears of being known, her fears of being seen as insignificant, her fears of suffering, and he crushes them by affirming her faith in him. She has come to the right place. She has exhibited the right heart. You see, you might think your own fears and trials and weaknesses and, sh- and sin is so embarrassing and so shameful that you are insignificant or your, your weaknesses are so insignificant that God does not care for you. Be honest, you might say your trials aren't as bad as somebody else's. But no issue, no discomfort, no sin is insignificant to Jesus when you bring that to him in faith. 
You see, this woman probably had some sort of Greek mysticism when she just touched his garment. Christians don't worship garments. We worship people. (laughs) We're not idolatrous. What we probably would have done would be like, that's a cloth, lady. What are you doing? But what Jesus did, he took her feeblest and even most insignificant faith placed in the right object, and he healed her. Why would you touch Jesus? Here we are today in the presence of all these people. Would you be willing to risk humiliation before humanity and to confess your most humbling need for him? How many times do we approach needing Jesus like we approach needing a new phone? We don't really want it, or we don't really need it. We can make phone calls, but it's nice to have. We don't really need Jesus, but sure, it's nice to have a little extra, you know, connection to the world around us, connection to the community, maybe some prayers that get answered a little more often. But at the core of anyone who truly reaches out in faith is a keen awareness of a need to touch him, an exclusive but often feeble conviction that this man and this man only might be able to fix what the world and all of its power could never fix. If I could hear, we often read things in scripture and we say, man, I wish I could have heard that firsthand. This is my verse. Can you imagine hearing from this woman why she touched Jesus? I would give up listening to sermons for 10 years to hear her answer. Because it's an answer of desperate faith. Why would you touch Jesus? Because whatever it is, Jesus wishes to grow it. But whatever it is, Jesus cares for it. But what about the Father? Look at what happens in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Just as Jesus says, to an insignificant woman with an inconsequential disease. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. A whisper creeps into the father's ear. Your daughter is dead. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Jesus stops to care for someone who could have waited and a young girl died. And what did the people from the house say? Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Unless we see the person and the power of Jesus in this text, we will always believe that terrible word of advice. We will go to Jesus because we have a need, and yet going with our need, it seems like everyone else's need is being met and we're being forgotten. We tried the Jesus route and it didn't work. I went to the Lord with my sorrow and nothing changed. I prayed for help and it didn't come. I gave it a shot and now it's time to find something else. How many of us think what the father is perhaps thinking in this moment that Jesus is not able to fix a problem as significant as mine? But this is not the end of the story. The power of Jesus is greater than all the powers of the flesh, for even death itself is no match for him. 
And here we see our final perspective this morning. Significant suffering is insignificant to Jesus. Read with me verses 50 through 56. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. See the heart of Jesus who wants to answer your greatest fears. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And here we see first, to any parent, even if your kid is raised from the dead, they're still hungry. We can't escape it. Well, what do we see here more importantly? We see that Jesus doesn't abide by the same tensions we do. For Jesus, it was never the best of times and the worst of times. It was never the age of light and the age of darkness. Why? Because he is the kingdom of God. He is the infinite, unbound, eternal son of God in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, who represented a world of reality beyond our understanding and power we can't ever imagine. He does not have to choose who he has the capacity and time to care for and who he does not. We do. We would have to choose. If put in Jesus' shoes in that moment, you would either have to say, lady, deal with it. You've been dealing with it for 12 years. Get over it. Or we choose the young, potential-filled young girl. This is what ER nurses and doctors do every day. They have to triage and assess the merits, what is really the value and the significance of those who have life-threatening harm. But Jesus doesn't have to choose because death itself is insignificant to him. It is not insignificant emotionally because Jesus stops to care for it. Jesus does not consider it insignificant emotionally, but he considers it insignificant effectually. Why? Because death has no power which Jesus cannot revoke and revoke forever. And this is so incredibly important for us to understand today. Let's take off the lens of, you know, we come so many times to God's word and we read it as this fairy tale with these superficial answers, but this was written for us. It was written for you. It's written for the one who lives in a world where diseases still go uncured, where children still die, where you and I will look at our life or the life of those around us and say, he's moving too slow. Why isn't it happening faster? Does he even care? Is he even able? We will sit at funerals with caskets too small. We will grieve with people who got the one phone call they thought they would never get. We will feel the burden of mental illness, suicide, and sorrow. But look at this man. There is nothing the world can do which Jesus is not able to undo. There is nothing this world can do which Jesus is not able to undo. That's what it means to walk with Jesus. That's why 
we touch his cloak. That's what our faith is in. That's why this man and this man only can say, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Yeah, how do some people laugh at that? How would you perhaps, or how would you respond to that? And maybe you think that, you say, (laughs) are you kidding me? Do you know what I'm going through? Do you know what I've witnessed? And all we need to do is don't fear and believe. Look at how even his response, or what response this merited in verses 52 through 53. And all were sleeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing she was dead. In the face of the world's power, we laugh at claims of faith. Why? Because we've seen death. Because we see tragedy happen every single day. Because we're not idiots. We too know what this feels like. We've buried people. We've felt grief. We know the normal experience of the inevitable brokenness of life. But here is the one who laughs back at the impossible. Jesus went and he took the dead girl by the hand, which again was entering into her ceremonial uncleanness. To touch a corpse was to also need purification. And he spoke, he took her hand. He entered into, he raised Lazarus by shouting into a tomb. And Jesus here entered into it by touching her. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. And he took her hand tenderly, kindly, graciously, and he said, child, arise. And what did she do? She got up at once. Two weeks ago, Jesus was on a sea and there was a storm and he spoke to the waves and he commanded them to be still and they ceased. Last week, Jesus went toe-to-toe with the forces of the devil himself and he commanded demons to leave and they fled. And this week, Jesus calls the dead to stand and even the dead obey. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus goes to those parents and he says, yeah, if you couldn't mention this, that'd be great. Let's not talk about this. Why? This was the most significant event that these parents have ever experienced. If the church needed a PR campaign, this is what we want. Remember, Jesus' reception at this point is not great. How about being known as the one who saves girls? That's a good thing. But Jesus knew that even this significant, life-altering miracle was insignificant compared to what was left to be done. There was something greater, something more significant, something worthy of more of a proclamation yet to come, and that's what Jesus wanted to be known for. Jesus himself, the one who raised the dead, was going to lay down his own life. He was going to die, not uh, for his sin, but for your sin, the root cause of all suffering, fear, and death. He was not going to make resurrection life available to those who ask nicely. He would make resurrection life available to all who come to 
him, having nailed their sin to the cross and being raised to the life by the glory of God the Father. And what does this mean for us? Paul tells us in Romans 6, 5, and 9. Here's the perspective of the gospel. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because of what Jesus was going to do. Because of the message that Jesus here is already prioritizing. It means that if Jesus has dealt with your sin on the cross, if you have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, you will rise. Really rise. It seems like a fairy tale. Why? Because we are here and we know death. We know trials. We do not live in eternity. We do not live in the new heavens and the new earth. We live today. But the cross is the ultimate proof that there is nothing in this world that Jesus cannot undo. You can laugh at Jesus and disbelieve, but what do you go back to? Mourning. If they laugh at Jesus, they sit in a room with a dead girl. But there's a better option. And that's that you believe Jesus. And in the meantime, you mourn. You know life is hard. You know sorrows fill the air. But one day, mourning will be turned to laughter. One day, the resurrection comes. One day, death no longer has dominion over you. How do you know? How do you know? Why would you touch Jesus? Maybe you feel like the woman straining at what's passing you by and leaving you behind. Maybe you feel like the girl's father who heard what he never wanted to hear, grieved despite the hope he had, wondering if Jesus is able to do this. Well, the same Jesus who stopped and cared in this story is the same Jesus we worship today. And the same Jesus who raised this girl back from the dead means that anyone who has faith in him has already experienced resurrected faith. Anyone who is able to put fear away by the presence of faith in Jesus is one who Jesus has touched your cold, dead, spiritual heart and said, child, arise. I cannot perfectly answer why evil exists. I cannot speak perfect peace into the trials and sufferings of your life, but I can tell you that I have experienced the touch of one who has promised to remove it forever. The one who in the midst of everything says, do not fear, only believe. What will it look like to walk with Jesus? It means we look at our world and we remind ourselves of two things in light of the gospel. The first is, I have been saved. Christ touched my sin on that cross and to have faith is to believe in a power that raises the dead. And secondly, it says, I will be saved. That there is nothing this world can do that Jesus will not one day undo. We don't know why that day is not yet. We don't know when that day will come. 
but we can know the Jesus who walks in the midst of it with us and says, do not fear, only believe. See, Job, in the book of Job, encountered trials galore, unending. The world, the flesh, and the devil declared all-out war on his life. He tried to grapple with it, as perhaps you have. And he had, as maybe you have, friends who came and sat with him and tried to straighten out everything that was going on. And at the end of it, the advice of all of his friends, the wrestling of his own heart, didn't bring him any peace. But then something happened. After 37 chapters, God finally spoke. He spoke and he confronted Job with his power. So much power. Job was humiliated in light of it. And yet in the midst of realizing the power of God and his own limitations, he found something astounding. You know what he found? Peace. In the face of uncertainties, it was when Job encountered the powerful presence of God. It's not that this world made sense, but it's that God did. And look at what he says in Job 42, verses 2 through 3. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is, this is a rhetorical question that God asked Job, who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Job begins again, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And right after this, God turns to Job's three friends and he rebukes them. Why? Verse eight tells us, God says, you have not spoken of me what is right. The only thing that makes sense of our suffering is the word of God. And the only thing that brings us peace in our suffering is the power of God. And in Jesus Christ, we get even a better answer than Job. Where the word of God and the power of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Where we no longer have to take God at his word, hoping in a promise yet to come. But we look back at Jesus and we take up that real man who really lived and really died by faith. In Jesus, God has come down in the flesh to replace our the comfort of incomplete and insufficient friends. Jesus is now the one who sits with us and comforts us. But in the midst of it, to have Jesus is to have one who beat death. To sit with Jesus is to sit with the one who reminds you what the world whispers is not the end of the story. To sit with Jesus is to have an eternal perspective of diseases that might not be healed, of sorrow which might not seem to end. But one day, resurrection life comes and he is here in the midst of it. For those who feel like this woman, set aside your feeble faith and throw yourself with confidence at the feet of Jesus. For those who feel like the girl's parents, crushed by what seems insurmountable even though you've done the right things, prayed the right prayers and hoped in the right place, do not cease to trouble this teacher. He desires for you to come. And there is always hope when we walk with the one who raises even the dead. And he has shown us on that cross that one day all will die. But for those who have faith in him, for those who bring their insignificant and their significant trials to him, your forever call will be, child, arise. Let's pray.
Lord, it is so hard in our flesh to trust in a person instead of a simple paradigm or observable truth statement. But the problems of this life and the power of your grace are so large, it demanded Jesus. It is in Jesus everything is reoriented. It is in Jesus everything is healed. It is in Jesus that our only promise is. And as we strive for the promises of the world, as we experience the weight of 12 years of suffering or a moment of sorrow we could never imagine, it is Jesus who calls us forward and the cross has proved it. It is Jesus who enters into our uncleanness on the cross. It is Jesus who calls us his children and commissions us to peace. It is Jesus who takes our hand of dead faith and calls us to life. And it is Jesus and only Jesus who is our hope forever. Lord, we ask you apply this hope in our lives as you see fit. We pray this in your name. Amen.